0: is an odyssey original
1: this is knx in depth i'm mike simpson
0: and i'm Brian Ping, and today for charles feldman something isn't adding up gas prices as high as they've ever been but the price for a barrel of oil isn't anywhere near a record right now so if that's the case then why are gas prices at or near record levels when barrels of oil are not we go in depth to try to figure this one out Plus, President Biden says a recession is not inevitable, but many economists and stock market watchers disagree. We look into who's right. The rain and flooding lead to a stop in production of certain baby formula. Are we in for another supply shortage? Three Americans
1: missing in Ukraine. We go in-depth into what could have happened to them, and if support from the West is getting a little shaky as Russia makes advances. Today marks the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in. We'll look back and compare what happened then to what happened January 6th. San Diego trying to settle a dispute between tennis and pickleball, heating up down there, one side says it's being smacked around unfairly. And uh, Johnny Depp's uh, handsome ways could have been the difference in the defamation lawsuit against Amber Heard. Uh, some are asking, is he just too good-looking?
0: Don't mess with those pickleball players. We start with gas prices. John Paisley is president of Stratus Advisors, a global energy sector consulting firm. And John, thanks for joining us. So it does not look like our record-high gas prices are correlating with uh, huge records high prices in the price of crude oil. So what exactly is happening here?
2: Well, first of all, there there's there's a several reasons why we're seeing very high pump prices. And when you look at it, the first one is is a demand when you take into account next, net exports are running very close to the 2019 or pre-covid level. At the same time, you got refining capacity in the US has been reduced by around 6% because of refinery closures that took place during the height of COVID. So what you end up with is very high refinery utilization, running around 94, 95%. And in the U.S. Gulf Coast, which is the center of the refining sector, you're running around 97%. And coupled with that, you have below normal inventory levels. So when you add all that up, you have a very uh, strong fundamentals for gasoline prices. And then when you look at California in particular, that's an isolated market, both from a legit point, but also because of the carb gasoline. So that adds additional pressure on the uh, California situation.
1: Yeah, we always get an extra here. Um, Can we do a breakdown of how much A gallon of gas, like a percentage, do we have that, uh, is actually tied directly to, you know, oil prices and how much of the rest is just made up from other things, taxes and fees and, and distribution and all that stuff?
2: Yeah, the overwhelming majority of the price is directly related to crude prices. And then you have, as you said, you add on the taxes. Uh, And then you add on your supply and distribution, and then the little margin that you make uh, that the uh, retailer makes. So the overwhelming uh, majority of it is 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 in crude prices, Uh, and and then and and then what it takes to process it to make uh, uh, the refined product. So there that's where most of the cost is. And right now you're running very high uh, 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 refining margins because you have this very uh, strong fundamental supporting that very tight. Uh, uh no excess capacity in refining uh coupled with strong demand
0: the democratic criticism here is that these oil companies are profiteering they are just you know making off with these uh, huge profits under cover of you know other events that are happening right here are are they correct at all in that
2: the Refining business is similar to any other business. There are the fundamentals that drive it. It is a commodity. Uh, The oil prices are set globally. Right now we have issues uh, because everybody's well aware because what's happening with Russia and Ukraine, uh, which has helped prop up the uh, oil price. And then, as I have said, you have re- less refining capacity because of the capacity that was taken out during the, the COVID when you the energy sector was uh, being very uh, much under pressure with very low oil prices and, and, and very reduced demand. And so now as demand has picked up, uh, the, uh, the U.S. demand, while it's running below the pre-COVID level, the U.S. is exporting on a net basis Around 500,000 barrels more of gasoline than it was uh, uh last year. Uh so that so you and, and part of that is because some of what's happening in the global situation. So that this has been looked at a lot of times by the FTC and others, and it it, it always comes back with the same conclusion. Uh so uh that the that the oil industry are not manipulating prices.
1: John John Pasey, president of uh, Stratus Advisors, global energy sector consultancy firm. John, thanks.
0: Lots of talk about a looming recession, but President Biden says a recession is not inevitable. The president also dismissed the idea that last year's COVID-19 aid plan was fully to blame for inflation. Ryan Sweet is Senior Director of Economic Research at Moody's Analytics. And Ryan, you know, the president may have a point here. Uh, you know, the economy in some sectors is still pretty strong. We just had a report in California that we're adding jobs here. And, you know, price is high in many regards because people are still willing to pay them. But uh, do you agree with the president in where a recession is not inevitable?
3: Yeah, well, I don't think it's inevitable in the sense uh, for, the, for this year or next year, but you know, we haven't repealed the business cycle. The, a recession will happen at some point. This expansion can't go on forever. Uh, but the economy's clearly slowed. Uh, but we're not in a recession now, and we're likely not going to be in a recession uh, uh, in the rest of this year. I, I'm a little bit more concerned about the economy in 2023. Given all the tightening in financial market conditions recently, that will bite in the economy next year. Uh, the Fed rate hikes, they affect the economy with a lag, and that's going to be early next year. So the economy is going to face a lot more challenges next year, uh, but that doesn't mean a recession is guaranteed. Uh, but we're going to need a little bit of luck to get through the next couple of years without uh, experiencing a mild downturn.
1: Yeah, I mean, it eventually will happen, to your point. We just hope that it doesn't last a super long time.
3: And I think that's a great point. And I think there's a couple of things to consider when looking at recession risk. I mean, first, what's what are the odds of a, a downturn? And uh, also, how significant of a recession is there going to be? And uh, normally the catalyst of a recession is critical in determining the duration of the the recession and the severity. Uh, And the good thing now is when you look around the economy, the household balance sheets are in very good shape. Uh, Non-financial corporate balance sheets are in good shape. Uh, So we don't have a lot of glaring imbalances. Odds are if we do experience a recession in the next 12, 24 months, it will be fairly mild and, and pretty short.
0: Yeah, we came out of the you know, last quick downturn at the beginning of COVID because there was so much pent up demand, but we don't really have that in our arsenal this time around. We don't we're not really gonna see that boomerang effect if and when we hit that next recession, will we?
3: We won't, but uh, you know, our first line of defense in a recession is the Federal Reserve. You know, think of them as the firefighters. They're gonna come in with the the axes and the fire hose and they're gonna put out the, the recession pretty quickly because odds are they're gonna be the ones that Tip us into a recession because they're trying to fight inflation uh and you know they're laser focused on breaking inflation's back uh the risk is that they achieve that but they also break the economy so if we do experience a recession you know the fed's going to uh, lower interest rates very very quickly we'll get some additional fiscal support you know the automatic stabilizers for example you know unemployment insurance benefits they, they will still kick in uh but you know recessions you know. It's, the next recession is probably going to be more like a garden variety. It won't be anything like the pandemic. It's not going to be like the great financial crisis. That's probably going to be something more similar to the, the downturn that we saw in uh, the early 2000s. Uh, but the subsequent recovery should be much stronger than we saw in the early 2000s.
1: The other big uh, line from this interview the president gave was that the idea that uh, the COVID aid helps to trigger this and, and lead to the inflation is uh, bizarre. That's what he said. Is that argument? Bizarre, And is that even the full argument? Because I think it's more along the lines of, yes, you need aid. It was the middle of the pandemic. Do some to help people, but don't inject so much money into the economy.
3: Well, I think we remember where we were at that period. I mean, we're kind of staring at the abyss uh, from an economic perspective. I mean, the economy was you know, really falling apart. So all that stimulus was necessary. And I think that did help the stage for a quicker recovery. We've done a lot of work on this, and seeing, you know, trying to map the stimulus to what it means for inflation. And when you decompose the inflation problems that we have today, so for example, the consumer price index uh, is up 8.6% on a year ago basis. A lot of those problems are tied to just two things: energy, and that was uh, attributed to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and not the stimulus. Uh, energy prices are adding a lot to inflation in the U.S. Not just you know through higher heating oil, but also through gasoline prices, and then also supply chains, uh, you know. The poster child for that's new and used vehicle prices. I mean, new cars are an appreciating asset. That's, you know, that's backwards. Uh, So those two areas are, uh, account for about half of our inflation problem. So I do think the president has a good point, a valid point in the sense that, you know, the stimulus really wasn't uh, as inflationary as I think some economists are making it out to be.
0: Ryan Sweet, Senior Director of Economic Research at Moody's Analytics. Coming up today is the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in, which eventually led to the downfall of Richard Nixon's presidency. We look at the parallels to January 6th, and Johnny Depp may have such a handsome face that it helped him in the defamation trial against Amber Heard.
1: We'll talk about that at the end of the show. Right now, more problems when it comes to baby formula. Abbott says it stopped production of a specialty formula at a plant in Michigan because heavy rains flooded parts of the facility. They say there's enough supply out there now to meet demand. Um, What's happening with all this? Dr. Lisa Hong, pediatrician at Providence Mission Hospital in Mission Viejo, is with us. Doctor, thanks for coming on the show. So how would you gauge how things are for the parents out there uh, right now, at least from what you're hearing from them?
4: It's been tough over the last few months, actually, because of the shortage, uh, supply shortage and then labor shortage, and then with the voluntary recall and the plan shutting down. So it's been tough. Um, It it has gotten a little bit better, and as you know, with the uh, Operation Fly Formula uh, We did receive some formula, so it's been a little bit better. Uh, As far as what I'm hearing from my patients, it's uh, a a little easier for them to find formula. We're also encouraging them to call us uh, if they need they have questions about what formulas to use, and then also if they have trouble finding it. There are also more resources in the community to help them find formula. So in that uh, respect, it has gone a little bit better. Uh, And as far as going to the stores, we are seeing a, a little bit of an improvement, but of course we can't predict. These little setbacks, such as the flood,
0: it just goes to show, you know, how potentially dangerous it is to, to bottleneck our, you know, most of our supply in this one factory that's had just a lot of bad luck, really, over these last few months.
4: Right, and then also, unfortunately, for babies, especially very young babies, it's sometimes there's no other option other than formula. Uh, please do not make formula. Please do not dilute formula. Uh, there's only very few. Uh, things that babies can eat and that's breast milk or formula and formula is specifically made to meet all those nutritional needs and if it's not available it's very problematic
1: do you think parents when they do find it now are buying up as much as they're allowed to because (laughs) they're they're already thinking okay well what if this happens again what if you know one of these other plants shuts down i remember how bad it was you know a month ago now that i can find it let me buy as many as they'll let me walk out that (laughs) store with
4: you know, that, that's a good point. I've had a few parents ask me, so how, how long do we need to be on formula? How much should I buy so I can kind of prepare and buy as much as I need? Um, so there are parents who are buying it. As far as hoarding it, I don't think that that's happening. And what I'm seeing in the community that is that a lot of moms are helping each other out. They are sharing the formula. They're uh, letting other people know that, oh, hey, this store has it, that store has it. And so there's been a lot of uh, community building as well, so I don't think that everybody's rushing out to buy it. Uh, there's there, every every parent understands that another parent is going through the same thing.
0: Uh, you, you mentioned, Doctor, about uh, how some babies they they have to have formula, that or nothing. But many other babies uh, can get by on breast milk, even if it's not from their own mother. And I've heard that there have been uh, stories about uh, milk banks that uh, mothers are really helping contribute to these, and they they are definitely uh, growing in popularity.
4: Yes. So if you can donate, if you have extra breast milk to donate to the breast bank, that's great. The breast banks are the way to go. If you either want you can, your insurance will cover it or you can afford it because it can get kind of pricey if it's not covered by your insurance. And breast banks are the way to get breast milk because uh, it is at the breast bank that they can screen the moms and know that it's safe, it's tested and it's regulated. Uh, we can't recommend getting breast milk from you know, the neighbors or your friends, because we really don't know how safe that is and whether or not anybody's on any medication and things like that.
1: Dr. Lisa Hong, pediatrician, Providence Mission Hospital in Mission Viejo. Doctor, thanks.
0: You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Brian Ping, and today for Charles Feldman.
1: Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson visiting Kiev to promise Ukraine more aid, more military training. This comes as Russia is securing control of the eastern part of the country.
0: It also comes as we're learning that three Americans fighting alongside Ukrainians are now missing in action. Journalist Phil Itner is back with us. He's been covering the war since the beginning. He was in Lviv and then Kiev and is now in Odessa along the Black Sea. So, Phil, talk to us about this. Uh, so, more Americans continue to put themselves in harm's way, and this is definitely something that the U.S. government is saying do not do.
5: Yeah, well, uh, and they're right, and they're right to say so. Uh, and I, I recognize the uh, uh, possible uh, contradiction there, being that I am an American in Ukraine, but this is this is. Um, this is not a place to come lightly, uh, and uh, President Biden's warning that uh, Americans should not come here should be taken in all seriousness. Uh, I, I, myself, having been here since uh, March 1st, have uh, been eyewitness to many who are coming here um, with uh, maybe... Uh, not not the most sincere uh, uh, or um, competent uh, decision-making uh, in mind. Uh, you know, when, when folks come over here, um, they really have to consider what it is they're doing, why they're doing it, and whether or not their skill set is such that um, it would be uh, an appropriate thing to do. Uh, I am not saying that these three individuals um, fall into that category, but I've certainly seen it here. Although, you know, having said that, I am here because I believe sincerely in the importance of documenting what is happening here. And I I have met many American soldiers uh, and veterans who have come over here who likewise hold the same uh, impression on the importance of being here. Um, But it is not a decision to be taken lightly. So we've got three Americans apparently um, uh, missing. Uh, two of whom do seem to have been captured by Russian forces, and that's Alex Druki, who is a, a, a veteran of the Army, Andrew uh, uh, Huyn, uh, who is a Marine. And um, there's a photograph uh, being floated out there showing them apparently in the back of a Russian truck, and we do have reports uh, that they were taken captive uh, out near the besieged city of, or the, the, the fighting out near the city of Kharkiv. Both of whom apparently were members of the uh, Foreign Legion, so they have signed a contract. They are not uh, mercenaries as such. They they are fighting here legally, and um, they would fall under the Geneva Convention as such. Um, Whether or not the Russians hold that uh, sacrosanct to be seen, because we've also seen them taking other uh, prisoners. Uh, We we saw Brit, uh, two Brits, and a Moroccan who uh, the. Lugansk uh, authorities have sentenced to death, claiming that they were mercenaries. But um, that is, that is a, a point of contention. And the third individual we have here you know, just being announced today, Grady Karpasi, who is a Marine. Uh, we don't know the specifics of his situation.
1: We first started talking when you were in Lviv. Then you went to Kiev. Now it's Odessa. Can you tell us what it's like to move about the country and what you've seen there in Odessa? And then also just kind of paint a picture for us of right now, who controls what?
5: Okay, well, I, I have I've been in yes, I started in Lviv, I went to Kiev, I went back to Lviv, and then I came down here to Odessa, and I've stayed on this side of the Dnieper River where the fighting is um, is really not there's no front line on this side of the river, um, but of course we do get uh, air raid sirens and there have been missiles launched uh, both at Lviv and Kiev while I was there, so it's not. A uh, safe thing to be doing, but compared to the fighting in the East, it is comparatively safe here in Odessa. Now this is on the black sea coast. So much of the, of the fighting here is actually kind of maritime in, in, um, in its, uh, aspect. And, uh, even just today, we heard the Ukrainians announcing that they sank another, uh, Russian ship that was trying to take, uh, weapons to that snake Island, that famous Island where the, uh, The the Ukrainians put up such a a, a virulent uh, uh, resistance. Um, So there's combat happening here, but it is mostly over what is happening out in the Black Sea. We have a couple of air raids. I've had a couple of air raid sirens while I was here. And the place is in lockdown because there's a very important strategic port here. Uh, There's a blockade. There are mines in the water. And it's very eerie. I've been here many times, and it's very eerie to be here with no... Uh, vessels, no shipping happening. Uh, And of course, uh, that that could have wider ramifications because so much of Ukraine's uh, food supplies are shipped out of here. And unless they figure out some way to get that to the international market, we we could be facing a very serious uh, food shortage uh, internationally.
1: Journalist Phil Itner, now in Odessa in Ukraine. Phil, thanks for coming back and talking to us.
0: June seventeenth, one thousand 1972 seemed like any other day in Washington, D.C., but the events that evening would have impacts felt still to this day. Five people broke into the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate office building.
1: The start of the Watergate scandal that took down President Nixon 50 years ago today. With us to discuss the impacts then and now, James Grossman, executive director of the American Historical Association. He's taught at the University of Chicago and UC San Diego. Is in DC right now. Thanks for being here. So, what's on your mind today, marking the start of all that while we're in the midst of this, these hearings over January 6th?
6: Well, it's hard to not have on one's mind in this situation uh, the threat to democracy. And Watergate, uh, the conclusion at the end of Watergate, as you might recall, was gee, the system works, uh, democracy works. Uh, Nixon is gone. I mean, that was that was in essence, uh, people thought more about how it demonstrated that the system worked uh, than what went wrong that led everything up to it. And we're in the midst now of a crisis of that very system, uh, because what we're seeing is uh, unfolding before our eyes, uh, an attempt to undermine the workings of that system. Uh, and with Watergate, we had an attempt to undermine it, and it failed. Uh, it, 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 it didn't fail. I mean, it succeeded in undermining the candidacy of McGovern, which probably was, was not going to succeed anyway. But in the long run, at least to some extent, justice was done. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen here. Uh, what's interesting, also though, is that this is also June 17th, the anniversary of the Statue of Liberty. Arriving in New York Harbor, and so what we're seeing here actually is three things that have to do with icons of freedom and icons of liberty, uh, in terms of what the Capitol symbolizes.
0: James, back then, uh, fifty years ago, the fallout of Watergate, there was you know to some extent unifying. Uh, happening because you know, voters kicked a lot of Republicans out of Congress. Mm-hmm. You know, the party knew that uh, you know, when, you know, what it had done, and there was uh, some degree of, of uh, penance there. But now it just seems to be uh, driving the parties further apart. And uh, you know, many Republicans yeah. who support the former president, they're just uh, stealing their resolve even further, and we're going in the opposite direction.
6: Well, I think one has to look at the difference in the media landscape. Uh, in 1972, If you turned on your TV or your radio, uh, it really didn't matter unless it was a no news station. You were going to hear about Watergate. And you were going to probably hear about the role of James Baker, uh, at, not of Howard, I'm sorry, of Howard Baker at the time. Uh, Howard Baker became in in essence, in some ways, a national hero, uh, as the conservative Republican, uh, the, um, leading member of the minority on the committee, uh, who sat there in much the same way Liz Cheney is now. But at that time, you didn't have a Fox News. You didn't have social media. You didn't have a way in which uh, Republicans could, in essence, shut out the mainstream media and hear only uh, news that basically uh, is diminishing or not even saying anything about the hearings. So in 1972, it didn't matter who you were. If you were interested in politics, contemporary affairs, you were hearing about Watergate.
1: Still seems uh, like those Republicans, could- though, were more willing to either pursue this or even, frankly, listen to it. I mean, look at what we have now. So many quotes, so many stories, so many phone calls saying the day of, you know, this is this is right. a bridge way too far. And then oh, wait, let me wait a few more weeks and go to Mar-a-Lago and and apologize.
6: But what would happen, uh, just as a hypothetical, if there were no Fox News and if there were no, in essence, social media space in which people could, in essence, follow news as people interested in contemporary affairs uh, without encountering these hearings? Liz Cheney is a very conservative Republican from an iconic Republican family. What, how would people be reacting to her leadership here if you had the same kind of media landscape that you had in 1972? I don't know. Uh, so to some extent, you have to look at that media landscape. Uh, and yes, the polarization is obviously, uh, extreme here in a way that you, you didn't have probably in, in 1972. Uh, one of the things that's changed since 1972 is that the most, uh, the, the Democrat in the Senate or House who is the furthest to the right is still to the left of any Republican and vice versa. There is no Republican to the left of the most conservative democrat that is new until recently that had never ever ever happened so you do have an extreme polarization now that obviously is going to affect this
0: are are you concerned uh, james that you know this could be going in 50 year cycles where we may perhaps learn lessons here and uh that that parties who are responsible are held accountable to it and then we go through a, a phase of a stable democracy but then this happens again where we have another uh a person who is willing to cling to power as uh, desperately as they can and we go through this whole episode again
6: uh one of the things about democracy is that it allows for change right i don't, I don't believe in cycles of history uh but there is such a thing as human agency There is such a thing as change over time, and one of the good things about democracy is that things don't stay the same. Uh, Since people have a voice, things presumably can can change. So yes, perhaps even if we resolve this in a satisfactory manner in 50 years, something else might emerge. And I should say that this was not unimaginable in the mid-20th century, even before Watergate, uh there were uh, novels uh written um there was one called 7 7 days in may uh even earlier than that it can't happen here much earlier than that there was a there was a fair amount of uh fiction that actually imagined this kind of situation uh so this was not unimaginable i think what's interesting here also that's different from watergate is that in watergate we really didn't see a role of the military. Uh, and that is very different in this situation because there's a big issue about why the military wasn't wasn't on the Capitol steps. Uh, the military, you had a strong military presence, National Guard presence, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial only six months before January 6th uh, during the uh, summer demonstrations. Uh, but somehow on January 6th, no National Guard on the steps of the Capitol. So that is one of the other important aspects here uh, that deals with the chain of command uh, that no doubt will unfold. So so there are many aspects of this that are very different.
1: James Grossman, Executive Director of the American Historical Association. James, thanks.
0: You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Brian Ping, and today for Charles Feldman. You ever played pickleball? If you have, you know how intense it can get, how popular it's becoming. Well, it sparked a rivalry of sorts with tennis. Some pickleball supporters in San Diego say the city should convert unused tennis courts into pickleball courts. They claim tennis is not as popular, and the city isn't doing enough to help pickleball players. The city says it's bringing in an outside consultant to try to settle this whole thing. John Broderick is president of the San Diego District Tennis Association. He actually plays pickleball himself. And John, is it fair to say that tennis isn't as popular? Can't can't, can't you uh, two? I mean, you play both sports, but can't you guys just get along here?
7: Um, yeah, actually, we we can get along. It's just a matter of the direction and the you know the story that the these particular two guys have portrayed. That um, it's just not accurate at all. I mean, tennis is not not popular. It's grown nationally about 25 percent and in san diego it's about 27 28 percent you know give or take and so to say that i mean tennis now like because of covid and all these other outdoor activities you know it's it's more popular now than at any time since the 70s so that's saying a lot you know and then for these guys to now come and claim that's their reasoning to take over tennis courts for that reason is just insane
1: Okay. Two things. Number one, can you give us a crash course on pickleball first for people who are not familiar? And number two, then tell us how heated this all has become because you're kind of uh, yeah. telling us a little bit through some of the words there.
7: Yeah. So, so pickleball, it's a great sport. I play it. I'm, I'm actually, I have a card carrying member of the USA Pickleball uh, Association and, um, you know it's really easy to play, and that's what one of the reasons it's become so popular uh and plus the formatting it's you know the games are pretty quick uh the paddle's very short it's you know it's not too much bigger than a ping pong paddle uh relatively so you know it's very easy to control so the longer the racket or paddle you have in your hand, the harder it is to control and and tennis is a you know a much longer thing so uh pickleball you know it's it can be played um on a hard surface um it's similar to You know, I would say tennis, they've said – bat. I know about badminton. I used to play badminton competitively too, but I wouldn't compare it there. Um, You know, it's just like a smaller version of – a bigger version of ping pong, um, smaller version of tennis without the overhead serve. And then you have – you know, then in the middle of the court you have this area. They call it the kitchen. I I call it, you know, the the dungeon of doom. But, um, you know, that you can't step into unless the ball lands in that area. You have to stay out of it. And that's why they have these little short game, you know, duels that go on before all the hard-hitting – and it kind of goes to end most points.
1: Dungeon of Doom, I like it. Okay, so how bad has it gotten? I mean, you're on the tennis side saying, don't take all over these courts. But, like, are people yelling at each other down there over this?
7: You know, I w- it, there's literally – I haven't heard anybody actually yelling, although I'm sure they want to. Um, but the pickleball guys have, have been very aggressive in their and their methods and their means. And, if, you know, they've kind of gone about it in ways of threats in terms of their terminology where – I never even heard of these two particular guys till January. Apparently, they they claim they've been trying to get pickleball here for the last four and a half years or so. And the first thing they came out with that I got wind of was was a letter that said, if you give us this facility, you know, here at Rob Field, we will pretty much guarantee the rest of the courts in San Diego will be left alone. Well. I don't know about you, but when I hear somebody make a threat like that, it sounds like a mafia thing. You know, I mean, I just was blown away when I heard that. and read it, and I'm like, "Well, I'll be darned!" You know, if if that's going to happen like that, I mean, that's crazy. Do you think that this whole pickleball
5: craze
0: is a temporary fad? And I no, think a lot of people. I don't believe that.
7: I, I I don't believe that at all. I think it's gonna. I think it. You know, the reason is, you know, it, it's a great. You know, nobody from tennis really that knows anything about pickleball would say that. And even in the, those, you know, even and then you don't really hear a lot of people saying, "Oh, I, I do." People hear people saying that, that, you know, from time to time, "Oh, yeah, get fatty." And I, I don't agree with that. I think it's going to be around. So I don't think that's the re- the argument. I just think that more pickleball needs to be added. You don't need to take away an existing tennis facility to do it. Find more places. Uh, to make it happen, we're actually working with the city and the mayor's office. To we actually have funding to build pickleball courts at Rob Field and at Dusty Roads, which is near here, uh, which is another wide open, a pretty big space where they have a you know a dog park, but there's plenty of room to add pickleball there. Add pickleball to Rob Field, and even Barnes Tennis Center, which is also in the epicenter of this argument, because. Those guys claim that the people here can just simply go over there, which is a total, just total. Those guys are on crack. Thinking <laughs> that. I mean, it's, that that is just you know is could never happen uh, for for more reasons than I probably have time to tell you. Can, but, can,
1: can we not just paint some stripes for the pickleball guys right. on a tennis court? No, it, it doesn't even, work.
7: Even those guys don't want to do that. You know, they're they're all about having their own facility. I'm I'm with them on that you know side of things that they don't they're not compatible other than they play on the same surface. The two sports playing side by side are doing the one or the other. If you've ever played tennis uh, and pickleball near each other, it's not a pleasant experience, particularly for the tennis people. And having co-lining when you're trying to field a hundred mile an hour serve at you you know, you got to make that call immediately. You can't sit there and go, "Oh, I don't know if that was the pickleball line or the tennis line," and uh, it just doesn't work very well. Let alone all the noise and the ball running onto your court issues. So no, that, that's not a good. It's not a good solution.
1: All right, no compromise there. We'll we'll, we'll hope you guys figure it out. Uh, that's John Broderick, president of the San Diego District Tennis Association. We uh, did try and get in touch with San Diego Parks and Rec. They didn't call us back. Also reached out to the pickleball supporters who have prompted these complaints, um, but uh, haven't heard back
0: from them yet either. How'd they come up with the name pickleball? Anyway, It's kind of funny. They're in a pickle right now. Yeah, I had to go there. i bump. Johnny Depp is one of Hollywood's biggest stars. He's been an A-list celebrity since practically forever. He's also considered one of the best-looking men in show business.
1: Too good-looking? That's the subject of a recent New York Times column, the headline, The Privilege of Male Beauty. It's about how Johnny Depp's attractiveness factored into the defamation trial against uh, Amber Heard. With us is the author of the piece, Rhonda Gerlich, Dean of the School of Art and Design History and Theory at Parsons in Manhattan. Thanks for being here. So, for those who haven't read this, uh, can you give us a, a broad brush first, and then we'll kind of pull the threads as we go along here? But a lot of it is actually right in that first graph. Uh, when you're attractive, that's power that that you can wield.
8: Well, exactly. Uh, I thought the trial was fascinating for. The part that didn't get discussed, which was the enormous social media support and campaigns for Mr. Depp that focused on his extraordinary or his at once extraordinary uh, beauty. And I think beauty comes with privilege, as we all know, but we rarely talk about what happens when a man is unusually good looking, not just a handsome movie star like a Cary Grant or a George Clooney, but a person of unusual facial sort of exquisite delicacy, at least in his youth. And I was just completely fascinated by all of the support, thousands, tens of thousands of people on social media talking about him as a king, as a god, um, as if that had something to do with the legal details of the case. And I wanted to think about how different that was from the way people regarded Amber Heard, who was also uh, a quite a beautiful lady.
0: Well, I mean, this is all theory as to whether this played a factor in the outcome of the trial. It's not like you're going to come up to a juror and they're going to say, well, he's just a gosh darn cute. I, I couldn't help myself. But it's a subliminal thing, right? I mean, you know, you look at somebody who in court who's all ramshackle and be like, OK, in you know, in prison garb and it's like, OK, that guy did it. So, I mean, that's not fair. But, you know, sometimes that's what goes through people's minds. And then you counteract that with, I mean jack freaking sparrow it's it, it, that you could see where people's minds might go there
8: well certainly i can't know none of us can know what was in jurors minds but what interested me was the the social outcry around the trial and it's very likely that people involved with it it's almost impossible that they did not know about this social media uh, campaigning and i think we tend to overlook how powerful that is when it's a man, because we tend to associate beauty and discussions of beauty with women. But I think what happens is when a man benefits from that kind of credit, I call it beauty credit, it's actually more powerful than it is for women.
0: Well, he, I mean, he he had the eyeshadow going on with some of his characters. <laughs> I mean, he had kind of this, this feminine beauty to him almost.
8: That's exactly right. And I talk about that in the piece. Johnny Depp was known for unusual roles, especially in his collaboration for many years with uh, director Tim Burton. As you'll recall, his famous roles were sort of surreal cartoon characters. Um, Willy Wonka, Ichabod Crane, Sweeney Todd. um, uh, And of course, Jack Sparrow. These are what I call heavy makeup roles, and they draw special attention to the face of the actor who portrays them. You need a certain kind of beauty to withstand that scrutiny. And not every male actor could possibly have succeeded in those roles. It had to do with staring at that face in an enormous screen, you know, up on the screen with fascination that really requires a different level of physical beauty. Do I think that there's a direct line between that and what happened in the trial? Not necessarily. But what happened around the trial, this renaissance of interest in Johnny Depp, the fact that uh, the Dior company is still using him in their Sauvage perfume ads, which, by the way, feature packs of bulbs in the ads.
1: Why would he get credit for it? Now, I mean, he's aged. Good looks are subjective. Maybe people still think he's good looking. But, you know, why does he get credit still for 90s Johnny Depp?
8: (laughs) Um, I think of celebrity, especially for male celebrities, as a kind of force field. And when you look at a star who's had a 30, 40 year career, those in the public who remember his early stardom, infused today Johnny Depp at 59 with yesterday's Johnny Depp at 29. And I think that we see this kind of layer of looks from decades ago that still benefit him. Sadly, I'm not sure the same thing applies to women stars. We tend to talk a lot about aging in women and whether they're well-preserved or too preserved and have done surgery or Botox or what have you. And there's a lot of shaming around women, especially in show business who try to preserve a youthful look, whereas men benefit from a kind of youthful aura even long after their actual youth has
0: gone. Yeah, And he was, you know, always kind of the impish bad boy, you know, and that, that, that's got its own appeal to go on top of the, uh, the dashing looks.
8: Well, absolutely. And the other thing is, of course, Amber Heard is over 20 years younger than Johnny Depp, and we don't find that unusual because of the age difference that is very common among men and women. But One thing that I I did not put in the piece but thought a lot about was that if you follow the social media trolls who were very uh, vicious about Amber Heard, they said things like, oh, she's pushing 40 and she looks it. Um, But about Mr. Depp, who is decades older, they talked about his beauty. That's a kind of reverse age prejudice that I think has everything to do with gender.
1: Rhonda Gerlich, Dean of the School of Art and Design History and Theory at uh, Parsons in Manhattan. Rhonda, thanks for talking to us. That piece in the New York Times, uh, The Privilege of Male Beauty. That's in-depth for today and for the week. We'll be back on Monday.